that this guy, Dmitri, is in the Russian royal family, okay? The Russian royal family, which has to a person either been executed or in exile somewhere. He's one of them, right? He's very rich. He has no country. Aww. He's so sad. He's so tall. He's so rich still. <laughs> All right. Coco's like, num, 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 num. History, I'd like to follow me down the rabbit hole. History, I'd like to, frankly, I want to know. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Hilf. History I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody. Coming to you from The Den. That's the Deluxe Edition Network. To find more great podcasts in The Den, click the link in our show notes or go to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. The subject of this hilf is fashion and culture icon Coco Chanel. It seems unlikely, whoever you are or from wherever you're listening, that you're unaware of Chanel. The perfume, Chanel Number no. 5. The iconic Chanel suit, which was famous even before Jackie Kennedy wore it in that infamous parade in Dallas. She was even the inspiration behind Audrey Hepburn's role in Breakfast at Tiffany's. In the past decade, however, over 40 years after her death, it has been revealed that she was also a Nazi collaborator. I mean, this is a wild one, friends. It ends up kind of a hate hilf, to be honest. <laughs> My guest is comedian, independent filmmaker, and fashion connoisseur, Amanda Michelle. And you can't see her, but trust me, she looks fabulous right now. <laughs> Let's get started. <laughs> and you did, man! I opened the door, and you were walking up my driveway yes. in this like luscious faux fur. Your shoes are dope. You just always look dope. That's what I always know about you. I had to bring it, especially for this podcast. It really, <laughs> yeah, it really. And then you take the coat off, and you've got Coco Chanel tattooed, tattooed yes. on your arm. Yes. Fuck, we're gonna fuck this. <laughs> we're gonna fuck the shit out. It's gonna of this. get crazy. It's gonna get so good. I'm so excited. Oh, Amanda Michelle, I'm delighted that you are here. You're in my house. I know. I can't believe it. We're fake. You peed in my toilet. You're gonna pet the dog. <laughs> We get to touch each other. This is very oh, exciting. Lord. Now, we met, I'm going to guess, five years ago is my ballpark guess. Five We'd, years ago? Right, doing stand-up around L.A. Oh, I don't... Did we meet LA. before Zoom? I thought so. I thought so, too. I, I don't think we ever figured that out. I don't know if we've ever traced it. <laughs> I know that Maybe. We've, we've performed in such illustrious places as uh, hotel lobbies. Yes. And above sandwich shops oh, on Sunset Boulevard. Yes. Yeah, really great Zoom place. rooms. Zoom. <laughs> We've done oh, all God. the finest. I mean, stages. the state, the finest Zoom rooms around town. You're so fucking funny, man. But <laughs> oh, that's the thing. You. I'll perform with you anywhere, anytime. You're so much fun. And like, there's a sidewalk outside of your front house. So yeah, there, you I do stand up on escalators and <laughs> oh, malls. Yes. I mean, really, there's I'm nowhere shameless. she is. She is shameless. No. <laughs> if you see an escalator and a pink microphone, that's that's me. That's you. That's you. <laughs> and um, and you, I said you're an independent filmmaker. Yes. You got a movie, and if I'm not mistaken, it's kind of k- kicking its stride. Like yeah. right now, it's called Diva Dads. Yes, it is. It's based on a true story of your of your two gay yes. dads. Tell tell us more about that. So Diva Dads started off as just an idea, like oh, I should write a story about my life or a movie about my life. 
but no one really does it. So I went back to school um, at LACC, Los Angeles City College, took some film classes, took some writing classes, and I developed the series. So it's called Diva Dads. They live in San Francisco. At the time, I lived in Ohio. Uh, after graduation, I got pretty much kicked out of the house. I moved in with my dads, and it's based on a true story of that happening. So I had to come. It's a coming of age, coming to terms. I was in the closet. I was closeted probably for about like until I was like thirty. Mm-hmm. So it was. It's a struggle, and it's about family and my journey. Obviously, it's a little bit more exaggerated. I would say it's similar to like the birdcage meets uh, with the heart of this is us. Oh. So it's a very campy birdcage, but it's a lot of heart to it so it's it made its way through about eight festivals yes and i'm doing a cast and friends and family so you're welcome as well yes uh the diva dads are coming up to visit and it's going to be amazing it's like the first cast and crew screening and i'm going to have some comedians open up the show have a q a after and it's just going to be it's going to be fabulous so it's a tv series so i shot it as a proof of concept we got shut down three times during COVID. Oh no! It was um, it was SAG after a student budget production, so we had to go through even more obstacles to get that greenlit. Um, so it's been about probably six years in the making, and currently we're trying to shop it to get streaming or network. So hopefully it picks up, gets picked up as a TV series after this writer strike. I don't want to talk or get into that right now, <laughs> it's but it's not a very good time to uh, sell a TV show, but. There is a trailer. So if you go to, to my Instagram, um, I have the trailer on there. And I always put news, up and coming news. I believe we do have an Instagram and a Facebook page for it as well. But I actually call my dad's diva dads and I think they control them. Oh, <laughs> so hilarious. They're always posting pictures of themselves <laughs> on, the, on the Facebook or the oh. Instagram. So I, I, don't, really... I might have to make my own page. They gave me access to it, but then they keep posting they're like oh we're gonna get all the handles and websites so that way when we get picked up like they're so cute like we'll have it ready but then they just keep posting on it so i'm like all right so (laughs) So, a way to get really familiar with the material in advance so you (laughs) might see two two guys two gay guys you might see like the tv show i don't know you'll get it's you'll get both that's awesome (laughs) and you are blonde bitch la right and so and if you can't don't worry about it i'm gonna have links to all this stuff people don't need to remember and you don't need to write it on your hand you can just go to the show notes and you can click on all this stuff and find her I want to talk about your relationship with fashion because I mentioned you have this Coco Chanel tattoo (laughs) you studied fashion yes um briefly where in San Francisco is that where you Mm -hmm. first went to study fashion and when I when you and I first started talking about what you might want to hilf Mm -hmm. together on the podcast you originally said um Gucci Coco, I will fuck anything that has to do with fashion. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) What is it that draws you to fashion and to Coco Chanel specifically? Coming from Ohio, you think it's like, why would I be interested in fashion? It's Ah, like, I play a game. Ohio. Like, are they a lesbian or from the Midwest? Uh, I'm both. So that's a good guess. (laughs) If you play that game, you wouldn't even (laughs) see that coming. (laughs) Literally. Um, oh, man. I don't know what it was. I felt like even growing up, I would always wear some sort of crazy costumes, types of outfits, character yeah. kind of things, like wigs and all that. I'm not saying that's really fashion, but I mean, it kind of plays into that world. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to San Francisco, um, I was studying theater at San Francisco City College. I was in a couple like plays and commercials and stuff throughout town. And then I don't know what it was. I just, I started working retail just for the holidays. And I think that just kind of 
sparked my interest that I didn't know I had of just uh, doing like visual merchandising and like styling people. Yeah. And then after that, I just kind of kept working retail and I'm like, well, I'm really good at this. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, at that time, I was doubting myself and my acting and comedic talent. So I'm like, well, if I'm never going to make it as an actor, like I could, I could be in the fashion. Like I know I can do it. So I actually, I studied at Academy of Art University, San Francisco. Um, I blogged for them for a while. This is like back when blogging and Twitter and all that was like at the height. (laughs) I actually got to go to New York fashion week and I blogged for the school and I went to the Academy of Arts fashion show, some other like indie shows and after parties. So that was great. What a dream. I had my friend who was a photographer with me. We had this little tiny crew. So like, I mean, it was just two. So <laughs> I guess you could like call two people a crew. <laughs> and then I just grew and fell in love with fashion. And Chanel, because she was a badass, like despite yeah. all the words and things and, yeah. you know, truth that comes out later, you still can't. Mm-hmm disagree with what she did for fashion and who she was as a person to come above you know being an orphan to pretty much saying fuck it and she made her way through so it's an incredible it's an incredible story she's an incredible person like any way you want to slice it even if you want to say she was incredibly awful that's fine she was still incredible you just can't yeah deny it right i had so much fun Uh amanda researching (laughs) oh my god are you like now i'm I'm wearing black and now i'm wearing pants you wouldn't be doing that totally well (laughs) i'm not really a fashion person like the the devil wears prada movie yes was great because that was kind of me in the sense that i'm like i mean i'm i'm wearing crocs right now i i (laughs) i am i i forgive you it's okay Okay. (laughs) they're so comfortable they and and i'll explain why coco herself would defend my crocs i know she would not maybe not crocs in general but my crocs she would um i, I wear ironic t-shirts do you know what i mean yeah, like this yeah. is not like i i like my fashion but at the same time though my clothes really express who i am i think yes. i think a lot i care a lot about the way i look but i've never been into like the fashion industry mm. and i've never been a brand person and i've always been fucking broke right so yeah. i either just look at something that i know i'm paying for the brand and i don't give a fuck about the brand and so who cares and at the same time um i want the nice stuff yes right? and coco chanel kind of transcends it all and part of the reason why you you gave me permission to do them all and i thought for a minute i was like "Ooh, maybe we're gonna do like an Versace orgy of designers or yeah. we're gonna get yeah. in bed with saint <laughs> Laurent. we're gonna get gucci we're just gonna fuck them all like bam quickies one at a time and there's a chance that may come down the road but Coco Chanel herself is is the grand dam, you know? Yeah. And honestly, one of the things that got me, too, was a Bill Burr bit. Because I, oh, I caught I this that. element of uh, Bill Burr. It, I don't think it was part of his stand-up. Or if it has become part of his stand-up, mm. it happened subsequently to this interview. Where he was talking about how we've canceled posthumously all these old white guys mm-hmm. for being fucking awful. <laughs> right? Yeah. And we, we dig up their shit. And we just tell everybody that you have to burn their records and you can't love them anymore because of this <laughs> terrible thing we found out they did. And he's like, but we don't do it with the women. And he's like, Coco Chanel fucked Nazis and was a Nazi sympathizer. And nobody's throwing their Chanel out. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I was shocked. I didn't know it. Oh, no. I thought it was so interesting. You know what I mean? And I was like, wow, now I got Amanda's Hill facade. I've had someone here. call me out on stage once because they saw the t- chat. Chanel tattoo. And, and I said, well, I'm also Italian, so you're going to hate me regardless of what I say. And I'm gay. So, <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, well. you're yeah. not going to like my set. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's crazy, right? How quickly these things, yeah. these images, these icons can go like one way or the other. And sometimes it's deserved. In this instance, 
Um, well, we'll get there. Yes. We'll get there. I'm going to talk, first of all, um, about my sources. Ooh. So this is one of them I hold before my friend, Amanda Michelle. The book Coco Chanel, The Legend and the Life by Justine Picardie. Feel free mm. to flip through there. There's some bitchin' pictures of her and her. Oh, yes. Her Riding many, horses. Her many consorts. Um, and then there's this fantastic podcast called Behind the Bastards. It's hosted by Robert Evans. Mm. It's great. If you like my podcast, you're going to like this podcast All too, right. girl. Um, it's got foul language. Oh, then I'm in. <laughs> and he generally uh, just like goes through some of the worst fuckers in history okay. and tells the story. And he's got this great... Uh, he's got a two-parter on Coco Chanel, okay. but he has this great very recent series on um, Vince McMahon from mm. the WWE that is like uh, fantastic. And then the the other huge resource um, is the like the recent book, The mm. Bombshell about her Nazi collaboration, which oh, is a book man. called Sleeping with the Enemy, Coco Chanel's Secret War by Hal Vaughn. It came out in 2011. Oh, shit. I have to check that. So there's a lot of like referencing that. So given this, and, oh God, and then Amanda, I sat down with oh, a no. big fat bowl of sticky weed one night late. You know what I mean? <laughs> Melby and Beatrice are oh, in no. bed, and I was like, I'm gonna get naked with Chanel, oh, you know? No. And I smoked all the dough, and I turned on some old YouTube documentaries of oh, like no. interviews with her and like documentary footage following her around oh, no. her like place, and it got so interesting, girl. Oh, it's so you're fun. Like, so wait, did you transport <laughs> there? By and then you're like, no, I want to go. Home. I mean, I went hard on Coco. It was oh, a delight. Man. I didn't take pictures because you couldn't have handled it. No. Um, but here's my plan for our hill thing okay. of Coco Chanel. Um, you already know one big fuckable deed that she fucked Nazis. Like that's, yeah. <laughs> that seems to be right. The newest, most interesting fuckable nugget about Coco Chanel. And she did. And she, and lots of other fucking guys too. Yeah. Um, and she was an artist. That is mm -hmm. a really significant thing to know about her. Um, and she was really, really cool. So yeah. I'm going to be a bad feminist uh -oh. as I tell the history of Coco Chanel, which is appropriate because she was a bad feminist also. Yes. <laughs> In that I am going to tell her history largely by the men she fucked and the men who fucked her. And it's just bad feminist That's stuff right. to do that. To just be like, here's this amazing woman. Now let me tell you about all the guys in her life and what they did for her. But she her. used them too to get where she, to where she was. It would be an incomplete, yeah. false, pretend history, honestly, to yeah. try to tell it any other way. So I am going to go through her fuck history to give you, <laughs> you her, her history. Black and especially now that she's fucking, her, her, her legacy yeah. is under threat posthumously because of who she fucked too. Like it just is how it is, right? Yeah. Um, and along the way of her little black book, we're going to stop at places like the little black dress. And I'm going to tell okay. the, the stories of how these iconic lasting elements that she gave us, uh, arrived within this tapestry of fucking. Nice. <laughs> Before we really get into Coco Chanel, I really want to paint a vivid picture of what women are wearing before Coco Chanel, because yeah. I think it can get lost, right? So she's born in 1883, and women's fashion in the 1880s, low and high, it just like got worse the richer you were, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Was the layers, the bustles down past your wrists, neck collars mm. up to your chin, cover the ankles, whalebone corsets, 
tied up the back. That could kill you at any time. You could absolutely, <laughs> and if you didn't, you could, or just knock you unconscious yes. for a few hours. And if you were highborn, right, if you had a bunch of servants, then several things happened. The, the corsets got tighter because they could, and the elaborate, and it's just like the fashion just kept getting more and more ridiculous. And yeah. people kept thinking, when is this going to tip over the edge? I mean, we have hats. These women are walking into these places with hats. Think Bridgerton meets the Kentucky Derby. Just so <laughs> ridiculous. Entire yes. nests of like multiple birds yes. and bustles that need uh, their own stools. And it's just, it's comical, but yeah. it's also, you know, you're in it. And, and honestly, one of the things that continually surprises me about history, and I've run into it a couple of times, is women's fashion, especially with, if you're like a, a, a regular health listener, the Donner Party and Jack the Ripper. Like, mm. these women are fucking dying. Yeah. They are starving to death. They are sleeping on the streets. They are they are in a, a slip from death and they are fucking <laughs> lacing up goddamn petticoats and they are putting on the course. They are dying and starving and wrapping themselves in these ridiculous clothes. It's just one of those things that it it's it gives you really I think valuable pause to mm. just look around and be like, what crazy shit am I doing? <laughs> Am I doing some crazy shit right yeah. now that is wackadoodle that I'm just doing because it's what everybody else does and it seems to be the thing? Um, but women are also genuinely trapped in these things. They cannot breathe. You drop something on the floor. Forget it. It, it may as well be in Baghdad. It's gone. You're never seeing that. It's like, I don't, I've been pregnant. You, you, when you're in your last month of pregnancy, anything on the floor is 100 miles away. You're never going to see it. It's never coming back to you. Just and, and but it it's also uh, the choice. You know what I mean? These are this is where drag comes in because some of my favorite drag performers, when I see the way their corsets oh, are tied up, and you're like, no, that's different because they like it. They want to express themselves mm -hmm. in this way, right? And it's where all fashion kind of has its line, which is like you can't tell people what to wear. Yeah, but people are being told what to wear. <laughs> you know, and it's um, and it's it's a, a delicate line. Have you ever done drag? I was a Lady Gaga impersonator when I lived in San Francisco, so. Okay, kind of. <laughs> kind of. I mean, I guess. I, I did perform at drag shows. Yeah. I think my stage name was Demanda Gaga. So I'm <laughs> well, sure I'm on YouTube somewhere. What a dream. With the disco stick falling yeah. over on top of a pool table. So if you find okay. that video, you're welcome. I'm surprised you don't have that video <laughs> locked up. Like ready, <laughs> like ready to play it ready at all go. times. <laughs> like, do you don't do you oh, drag? Man. They See, would just pay me in champagne to go perform, or <laughs> just show up in costume at bars in San Francisco in the Castro. That's great. I've been paid for less than champagne to do dumber <laughs> shit. They're like, it's Lady Gaga night. We need Demanda Gaga. We'll give you champagne. Bring as many people as you want. I'm like, okay, okay. I'll be there ten minutes early. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. Well, and it's and it's got to be fun. I mean, like all all clothes, the idea is, and this is the idea that that Coco really brings out, mm. is if you like it and it serves you, then it's great. Yes. And if it if it doesn't serve you and it confines you, then get get rid of it, cut it. It doesn't yeah. matter. So when she's born in 1883, bustles and corsets, mm -hmm. as far as the eye can see, it's almost like a religious garment. It mm. it has that sort of pressure in France and England and Europe and everywhere. And she is born, Amanda, poorer than poor gets poor. I mean, there yeah. isn't really a more impoverished story 
than the origin of Coco Chanel, right? Single mom, mm-hmm. she's a laundress. Her dad is a traveling junk salesman. So he is gone most of the time. He, he, there's stories of her having to like find him while like her mom had to like find him when she was pregnant and like conceal her pregnancy. And there was always this oh, like yeah. trying to track him down, right? They, these two, her, her parents eventually marry 15 months after <laughs> Coco Chanel is born. Mm-hmm. Her birth certificate has her name misspelled. Her dad's birth certificate had his name misspelled too, but misspelled in a totally different way. All of this to say, the details of Coco's life, especially her childhood, are incredibly difficult to track down. Mm-hmm. And it's made even more difficult to track down because she's a liar. No, oh, <laughs> Big. And, and it's tricky because she lied so much. Amanda, she lies. She could have been an actress. Oh, no, <laughs> yeah. She lies. So, and the, and you'd say, well, how do you know she's lying, Dawn, mm-hmm. if you don't have a record of what it actually was? Because that's the point. We don't have the record except for what she says, and she says 10 different things to 10 different people on 10 different occasions. Yeah. She never, her dad never met my dad, and I knew my dad. Didn't know. So you're like, so <laughs> she was telling the truth. Maybe, maybe one of those was the truth. Maybe none of them was the truth. She lies about the year she was born. She goes back and has a lot of documents changed mm-hmm. during her older years because she lied about her age and she wanted everybody to think she was younger. So she did oh a lot God. to like obscure that. Or in just retelling a story that took place when she was in her 30s, she says she was in her late teens because it just sounds more interesting that way. So <laughs> what it means is that you historians who are trying to piece together her life, certainly by the time we get to our millennium, are like, oh, this bitch lies all the time. We know that she was born illegitimately. Then we know she had five or six brothers or sisters by the same two parents. Her dad, though, is gone as usual. Mm-hmm. And she is traveling with her brothers and sisters and her mom kind of to flop house, flop house, poor house, a relative that can maybe keep them for a while. But they are unstable. Mom gets tuberculosis. And at some point on some freezing night in some one room shack, she fucking dies. There are no other adults around. And we don't know, Amanda, how long Coco and her siblings sat there in that house oh, with man. their dead mom. We don't know. Part of the reason why we don't know is because Coco doesn't talk about this at all. Yeah. She paid her surviving siblings tons of money to never fucking talk about any fucking thing to any (laughs) fucking buddy. (laughs) Okay. And she would tell all these various stories. And when people would touch on it, it was gone. She moved on before you could even (laughs) settle that one down. Okay. She's 11 when this happens though. That's formative years. Like yeah, you're old yeah, enough that's, no, you, yeah. that you were well aware of exactly what was going on. Her dad comes into town long enough after her mom dies to get her brothers sold off to a, a farm. Basically like, will you teach these boys how to be farmers? And AKA you give me money and I give you my children. Yes. Right. <laughs> and the girls were taken to an orphanage slash convent called, called Aubazine. And that slash in there, Amanda, real important. Because a convent slash orphanage means that there were some fucking girls who were there because they want to be nuns. Their mm-hmm. family wants them to be nuns. Being a nun seems like a thing you can do. They're paying, in essence, a certain amount of tuition. Mm-hmm. Maybe their families are giving something that this is worthwhile for them. And then you've got the fucking wards of the state. You know what I mean? You've got your cocos who got nothing. Yeah. And she's not even technically an orphan because she's got a dad who just fucked off, right? Dropped him off and went to America. And significantly, Amanda, in the Aubazine convent slash orphanage, Mm -hmm. the kids that are paying to be there sit in an entirely different place. 
and wear entirely different clothes than the kids who are there for free. So immediately we've got what clothes do. Plus you've got what the nuns are fucking wearing, right? Mm-hmm. The severe yeah. costume. This <laughs> severe, oh, that, definitely. And the yeah. Catholic church <laughs> is fucking full of severe and interesting costumes designed and made to put feelings in you and to, you know, or not to feel or not to feel. She essentially ages out there like she's she gets there around 11 or 12 and at 18 she goes on to like the next phase of this life mm-hmm. which is Didn't you know learn how to sew there though they do teach her how to sew right, so, so like, she goes to a boarding school okay. yeah and the yeah. point is you're exactly right is we take in these poor like destitute children yeah. we give them a skill <laughs> right yeah. the idea is <laughs> send them we're, off into the world yeah, but yeah. Them, we're better than nothing right yeah so yeah she knew how to sew she had uh, and she knew how to read and she was an avid reader so yeah i mean all something good considered, came from it totally um, and like phase two of this is like a boarding school where you're sort of learning, you're, you're a trade, you're mm. doing, you're trying to get into a shop to be a seamstress, right? <laughs> this town where they, where these girls go to like live happens to be also a town where all the soldiers go for their barracks and their training, which is a fantastic <laughs> dynamic <Yes>. population <laughs> to be thrust together, right? And our girl Coco uh, can sew a little. She's super hot, and she can kind of sing. So she gets on the stages to perf- around where you do this kind of mm-hmm. thing to perform for largely these hot, hot <laughs> fellas, right, who are in town. And this is where she gets her name, Coco, because she only has two songs. Yes, <laughs> she's not a great singer. She only has two <laughs> songs. She's not a great seamstress either. But she's a performer. You she's can't, a performer. You know. She's got these two songs. One is called Coco Rico which is like kind of how the French hear cock-a-doodle-doo. Mm-hmm. And it has sort of a similar like cock-a-doodle-doo, like Coco. <laughs> you get it? Like yeah. a coquette, like a, a mistress, you know? And then the other song was called uh, Qui Qua Vous Coco, which is like, where are you, little girl who lost her dog? Where are you, little Coco? Where are you, this is the history fucker in me. This is the part where you have to have read all this shit and seen all this fucking mm. stuff to get to this little nugget of truth about Coco Chanel. And once you get to this nugget about Coco Chanel, very little else that other people say is mysterious is in the least bit mysterious. Yeah. Coco Chanel was just really fucking cool. Period. I mean, she didn't give a fuck. Yeah. Like what, who is that? The coolest person in the room. She was beautiful, but she wasn't the most beautiful room. You know, you see pictures yeah. of her. She dolls up. She looks cute. She's fit. She's, she's not the most beautiful woman you've no. ever seen. She doesn't give a fuck. She's super smart. She's dark. She's like a Wednesday Adams. She's got like, she yes. liked to pick, she liked to pick off and destroy stuff without the nuns knowing it. <laughs> She liked to um, cough and pick her, get her nose to bleed so that she would have red, red on a white cloth because she loved to see red on oh white. She got some weird gift. This is a lie. So this story is completely made up. But she said her dad sent her a gift of a knuckle bone, a human knuckle bone with like uh, locations of famous Paris locations on it. And she was so moved by this like human relic that she like buried it in the cemetery where she spent most of her time. I mean, it's cool, right? Yeah. And she's on stage and she's not scared and she doesn't have an ego. 
and she's an artist Mm -hmm. and she's really curious about stuff. And so one of the things that happens immediately is that people are just really drawn to her. Do they want to fuck her? Absolutely. (laughs) Who doesn't? But that's not enough to explain the life of Coco Chanel because there's lots of people you want to fuck. And once they fuck her, they could leave her. Yep. But they fuck her and keep her. The first one to fuck her and keep her, and I mean, literally, she's a kept woman. It's what coquette means. <laughs> you know mm. what I mean? Is this guy named Etienne Balsen. He's her first patron, her first OnlyFans. Her, her first only fans, whatever subscriber, you want. Yeah. I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> something like that. Um, he sees Sugar her performing. Baby. Exactly. And, and generally, you know, we don't know the details, but generally, at some point, mm-hmm. veiled or thinly veiled he said do you want to come live with me i'll keep you <laughs> right and she said absolutely <laughs> she has some story in one of her memoirs where she was like i was 16 and i met him at the stables and he <laughs> and i said i was so unhappy i will kill myself and he said not on my watch and we ran away and my aunts never found us because sometimes she doesn't live with nuns she lives with these strict ants oh, in her no. fantasy so who knows who knows What we do know is that she goes to live on his estate for six years. She's not the only mistress in residence. (laughs) There are a couple of other, there's, yeah, there's a couple of other, like, I'm a singer, dancer, Mm. actress, model, (laughs) et cetera. And I also live here with Etienne. And she and these other broads spend their times riding horses going hunting with him and his friends, going to dinner parties, smoking cigars, being the kinds of women their wives and sisters are not. Yes. One of the ways is definitely fucking, but again, it's really critical to remember that's not the only way. Just having women a super... Women couldn't ride horses, and if they did, they had to be in full dress garments and every, everything that we t- you talked about in the beginning. You had to be, and you had to ride side saddle. And their reputations yes. and their positions. And smoke or drink in front of other people, especially in men. Other and men she had no husband. rules. She's like, I don't care. She didn't care. <laughs> and her rent's fucking paid. She's and like, she's fine. got her own villa. And one of the things she starts doing right away is wearing men's clothes. If she's mm-hmm. going out riding with Etienne and his rich fucking friends, she wears men's clothes. And she is... 20 something and super hot. So a man's riding Mm -hmm. outfit with a belt and a cute little hat looks like in the pictures you see there fucking hot twat. She looks fucking great. And everybody goes, Oh my God. And this is where the seeds. Now she is not trying to get anyone to do any fucking thing. She's just wearing what she wants and people go, Whoa. Right. Yep. That's super interesting. And one of the people in this Etienne's sort of environment who's swept up by her is another dude, another rich dude, uh, named Boy Capel. Mm. Oh, boy. Boy, oh boy. When there you find is. Boy. Mm. He's right there. And Boy is special in this world of like rich cunts who just spend all day playing croquet <laughs> in a similar way that Coco is. He is a kind of a self-made guy. He was in 1909 when they met, he was already rich, but he doesn't come from rich family. He's not totally impoverished like she was, but made his own money in the coal industry. And he's a polo player. He loves playing polo. And he's also a theosophist. So he's sort of interested in like, what is God and what's the meaning of the world and what's it all about? And he fucks everybody too. And did I mention he's hot? He's got this beautiful mustache. And Coco and boy... (laughs) right fall in Mm -hmm. love again we don't know what transaction how this whole thing works yeah but she with 
kind regards, moves out of Etienne Bolsen's Abbey estate and moves into a fully furnished apartment in Paris paid for by Boy Capel. And these two are everywhere together. Mm -hmm. And he is rarely around. (laughs) This fully furnished Paris apartment is not where he lives necessarily, Mm -hmm. although he'll be there with her um, on a regular uh, occasion. But they're just out. And she is still, Amanda, doing this thing where she wears what she wants. Mm -hmm. She's wearing, occasionally she goes out in men's clothes and it's like, oh my God. But because. Mind blowing. But what can you take from her? Nothing. Yeah. She, boy, is the one who takes care of her every need and she doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. And that is also what makes her so intriguing and makes people so drawn to her. And it may have, like, in history, that may have just been it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I remember the first girl who started tight-cuffing her jeans in middle school. Oh. That could have <laughs> that could have just been a thing that she did. Yeah. And we thought, that's interesting. But then none of us start doing it. Yeah. Like, why did we start doing it? <laughs> and World War I starts right? In 1914, and several things happen. Boy Capel goes, fuck, he's kind of crazy. He's kind of this cool, like, James Bond guy. He's doing all this, like, interesting, like, intrigue stuff all over the place. And the outfits that she was wearing, these, like, masculine, easy Mm -hmm. to move in, no more corset stuff, start to become really practical because the women have to wear this shit because they're driving ambulances and they're fixing <laughs> cars and they're running up and down things and they're carrying and they're, they need flexible clothes. And as it happens, the only fabric that's available is this like super light, like Jersey material mm-hmm. that was only really used for undergarments. And Coco realizes one, people are asking her for her clothes. They want to wear these designs. Yeah. Boy Capel is like, I'm going to fund your boutique, girl. I will buy it all. I will just make it happen for you. She designs a few for some specific clients, and all of a sudden, her, like, jersey, corsetless, loose-fitting, girl-can-high-kick-a-guy sort of (laughs) outfits are super popular. And they came out of, she had been designing hats and, like, designing a few other things. And this, like, in World War I, like, And that was her... What is it? Twenty Rue Camden. Yes, that was, and then she that stays was, she there. She stayed there the entire time. Exactly. And I actually been to the original that boutique underneath <gasps> with the mirrors. The I don't think I got hallway. it because I think it was. I think it was during East East in Europe. It's like Easter Monday. No one really has anything open. So if I'm not mistaken, it was oh. Easter Monday, uh-huh. and it was closed. But I do have Bummer. a picture of me standing in front of that. Boutique it's kind of like Mecca. where she lived upstairs. Yeah. yeah. And she, yeah. and uh, amazing. And they, the, the author of this book, you'll love it, discusses like walking through mm-hmm. her salon and like the, everything is bent and reflected so that you get this really distorted mm. view of not only your own body, but the room itself. And it's like very cool and disorienting. We'll and she was like, back. and she was buddies, you know, with uh, all of the like weird impressionalists yeah. and like Dadaists and Salvador Dali, Salvador and, yeah, Dali, yeah. Picasso. Yeah. It's very cool. I love this story, Amanda Michelle. It is the story of the little black dress. And I'm, and by the way, I'm almost certain it's bullshit. At least part <laughs> of the story is bullshit because everything she said was bullshit. But that being said, it's brilliant. It's a great bullshit story. And but what's sometimes about a funeral, I thought. Like she wanted black was only worn at funerals or something. That had and then been, she wanted to like just bring that color out until mm-hmm. whenever everyday use or but something. But the question is, yeah. right? Was that her intention? Mm. Or is that her explanation for a happy accident? And yeah. 
who knows, right? The, the way that she tells it is that she was, this is 1917, so we're still in the midst of World mm-hmm. War I. Boy Capel is out somewhere. At least he's not in this story. She's going to the opera, and he's not with her. So who knows? She's getting ready to go <laughs> with some friends. And she is wearing a long white dress, kind of in the style of the time. And her hair is down to her waist. She has super long hair. And it's in three huge braids that she has sort of piled up then on top of her head. And it's really heavy. And she looks great, undoubtedly. And before she leaves, she's going to wash her hands. And the hot water isn't hot. So she crouches down to check out the pilot light to heat the hot water heater. And there's a little explosion. And the explosion not only gets her dress all tarnished and ruined, but it burns her braids. All three braids get burned down through. And all of a sudden she's standing there and her hair is burned off and it falls then down in the bob, in a short curly bob around her face. And the only dress she has (laughs) available is this little black dress that ties in the front. She puts it on, she goes to the opera, and people just about shit themselves. You know what I mean? They're like, the short. And it's not just that the dress is short, it's that it's short and black. Because exactly, black was two things, mourning and nuns. Mm. Those were the only people who wore black. It was a dark, sad color that you either wore by choice or were forced to wear because you were sad. Or you were strapped into this sexless. Yes imprisonment of a job and she was like nah it's elegant and there it was it just transformed and it happened practically overnight the bob and the black dress are still unironically Mm -hmm. an easy high fashion choice for anybody anywhere in the world it was amazing and it was showing leg man Absolutely amazing. And that was also when she started wearing big costume jewelry. Mm -hmm. It wasn't supposed to look real. Long, excessive strings of pearls. And she was like, it doesn't matter if it's not real. It makes you feel something. It Mm -hmm. looks a certain way. And she was just giving people permission, you know what I mean, to like do whatever. But this is one of my favorites. So this interview. (laughs) So... Amanda Michelle, I am, as I said, sitting here in my my pipes watching (laughs) these interviews. And she's speaking French. I speak just enough French to pick up like every third word, but I'm not actually following what she's saying. I'm just watching her talk. And when you watch Coco Chanel move and speak in real time, it is stunning. She is effortless and yet super nervous. She she has a lot of confident guy mannerisms. She has mm-hmm. kind of a broad stance. Mm-hmm. She keeps one hand often on her hip, and she's usually doing that French, like, eh, you know, throwing things out like it doesn't matter. Nothing, none of this matters. And she's always holding, you know, a, a, a cigarette. cigarette. And in this interview, <laughs> this is like from 1960-something. She's in her 70s. Um, this young guy is from Vogue is sitting on the couch talking to her. And he says at one point, you made everybody cut their hair. And she puts her cigarette up in her, in his face. And she goes, I didn't make anybody do anything. I cut my hair. I cut my hair. And then they cut their hair. I didn't make anybody do anything. And it really is a pervasive element of this Coco Chanel just moved through the world doing whatever the fuck she wanted that she was around rich and influential people who wanted to be like her 
is why we have her fashion. She didn't push this shit on anybody. Nope. Right? Um, this is when everything really gets financially viable for her. On the one hand, the guys that like <laughs> supported her in her life, she, she's like, eh, poo, you know, it doesn't matter. We yeah. lo- it, they were lovers, they were sponsors, they were fellow artisans, mm-hmm. whatever. But it is important enough to her that she pays boy back. Mm. So that, that meant to me there must have been some tally, even an unofficial one in yeah. her mind, that there was an amount to give him that put her in the clear. Whether or not he was even ever going to exact that yeah. sum from her, there was something attached to that sum that she makes it clear that she paid him back for his investment mm. and became financially independent, didn't need to fuck anybody unless she wants to. And, and spoiler alert, she really wants to. <laughs> and she becomes financially right secure from him. Many people say the CC that you have tattooed mm-hmm. on your arm, obviously Coco, Coco Chanel, yeah. it's the C's. Some people say it was boy Capel. They were so in love. He was the love of her life, but they were always back to back. Are interlacing, but also facing away from each other, like her and this man. Because he was devoted to her and also married a woman of his station that he was expected to marry. And that was in 1918. He continued to travel with her. He continued to pay all of her expenses. He continued to see her regularly, even after he got married. And then one year after that, on December 20th, 1919, he gets into a fatal car crash on his way Ugh. to be with her for the holidays. She is completely devastated. Um, she doesn't really ever get over it and says consistently, mm. I, I lived after, but it was an unhappy life mm. after he died. But not a sexless life. No. Because <laughs> she doesn't need anybody anymore. Uh, but that don't mean that there don't be things you can still oh, get boy. from people. Um, so what we're going to do right now is we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to get right. deeper into her little black book. Yes. This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Like, I don't want to point fingers, but if you're anything like me, you're a nerd. But, like, cool nerd. Badass geek. (laughs) And if that describes you, or someone you need to buy a gift for, check out the shop Treehouse LA. They have cool, trendy, offbeat clothes, jewelry, and home goods. Like, you need a disco ball hanging planter, right? I know, who doesn't? (laughs) Treehouse showcases small batch work from local and independent artists. So art prints, wine glasses, weird corkscrews. (laughs) I don't know what you'll get, but I know you'll want everything. Shop in person from their locations here in LA or from anywhere in the world online. Go to treehousella.com. That's treehousella.com. You can also find them on social at Treehouse LA or a link in our show notes. <laughs> right now, 15% off as a first time customer when you enter the code WELCOME15. Do good, feel good, look good, and be badass <laughs> with TreehouseLA.com. Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow. Are your dads into fashion? 
Uh, kind of. They're not like into it. Like, do they care? Do they like critique what you wear and like? Oh think well, about yeah. They critique stuff? everything I wear. They think they're Tim Gunn on Project Runway, but <laughs> them themselves wear just like a black. He. They're very like. Car Lagerfield or whatever. They oh. just wear, you know, the same thing every day. The black V-neck and maybe yeah. a black jacket and jeans and black shoes. They like are black a boots. canvas. Yes, right? yes. A blank canvas. But yeah, if I wear something they don't like, you better watch You're out, here. girl. There's going to be photos. <laughs> We're going to be critiquing you. They're going to be posting them oh, on Facebook man. memories years later. Like they still repost fam- um, like family pictures of my sister and brother on like Santa's lap. I'm like, I was six. How I had no control. <laughs> and it was like 1987 yeah, or something. Was like, that was actually. Like the 90s. It was like a cat sweater and, and red <laughs> lips from Kool-Aid all over my mouth. Like, oh, I'll, I'll show you a picture later. I'm sure I have one on there. Immortalized. Oh, there was one that showed up that was from like from Disneyland. And I'm, I think I'm like 13 in the photo and I'm holding an autograph book. <laughs> oh, fuck. Anybody who was actually cool, like bona fide, <laughs> actually cool when they were 13 is an absolute psychopath. I don't think you're meant to be, I don't think you're actually meant to have your shit together at that age. It's not right. You're supposed just, to just hold autograph books and do your makeup wrong and like, have your I skin is doing things. autograph on my summer vacation. Well, you can't get your autograph <laughs> on something you're going to throw away. You have to have it something you're going to keep. Oh, there it is. Oh. Oh, God. You're going to love this. Talk about fashion. Oh, no. <laughs> Okay. That's pretty bad. All right. Hang That's on. really bad. Okay. Hey, we, can, we can roast looking, myself. Okay. Like I'm a 13 year old Amanda Michelle. You are standing next to Mickey. Now, let's be fair. <laughs> Mickey is not exactly a pillar of fashion in this picture no, either. And no. he's an icon. So you're with your siblings? Yes. Okay. Uh, younger brother, younger sister? Correct. And um, what, circa what year is this? Like mid nineties, I'd say that. You're wearing a baseball hat with like a two tone baseball hat brim, and you're holding lovingly in your hand a autograph book and a pen because you just got Mickey's autograph. Yes. Yuck. You're ashamed. Get up. You know what? This podcast is over. (laughs) You think about Coco Chanel as this like perfect put together, buttoned up, and then you see a lot of these pictures where what makes her cool is that she's just got like a leg flung over the arm like, of these a chair. People are just trashed on the beach. Like, For clear. sure. They're <laughs> like, holding they're a dog. Like... One of them's got a dog and <laughs> they're just dr- drinking. Oh, yeah. When last we left our girl, she was heartbroken. Yes. She had just finally made it financially. You know, World War One is mm-hmm. over. Hurrah. And the love of her life fucking dead. Fuck. Right? She... Uh, mourns him deeply that is certain because she's a fucking liar and tells everybody Mm. a different fucking story she will tell you later she mourned a lot longer as a Mm. single woman (laughs) she may have mourned but she was her sheets didn't get too cold okay Mm. her next fella that she takes up with um is the grand duke dmitry pavlovich of russia Mm. we ain't got time Mm-mm. To get into World War One, Russian Revolution, czar overturning, czar, you know, don't oh, got time. Yeah. But here, sufficient to say that this guy, Dmitry, is in the Russian royal family, okay? The Russian royal family, which has to a person either been executed or in exile somewhere. He's one of them, right? He's very rich. He has no country. Aww. He's so sad. He's so tall. 
He's so rich still. <laughs> right? Coco's like, num, 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 num. <laughs> and um, it's not a long love affair with this guy. But critically, he introduces her uh, to the world of perfume. Mm-hmm. She likes perfume. She's worn perfume. She's talked about how important it is. In fact, in an interview in 1960, she says, a woman is nothing without perfume. <laughs> She says that one's smell, the way that one smells, is the single most important thing about them. And then she says, this is my favorite quote, a woman is so pretentious who doesn't wear perfume. She thinks her own smell is enough. And then she sort of did this thing with her cigarette. Like, how dare you? That's very, very funny. Can you say it in French now, please? And no. No. And no. no. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, no. But she, so she's already digging on perfume. She already knows the thing. Mm. And then she finds out this Russian she's fucking has in ways mm-hmm. into this world. She will tell you she was the first ever to bring couture, a couture brand mm-hmm. to a scent. Technically, that is not exactly true, but she is the one who claims that she it, it, like yeah. in the world of presentation. <laughs> if you it saying it, you is, say it, then it has is, to be true. This is how the perfume, the legendary scent Chanel Number no. Five, came into being. She has this connection to a guy named Ernest Bow. He is a, a hilf, all his own. Half these fuckers are. <laughs> he is a chemist, a perfumer. And a soldier. He has these wild stories. In fact, he says that the primary smell for Chanel Number no. 5 came from his memory during the war oh of the ice in the Arctic in the morning would give off this very specific aroma. And he had been tracking it and tracing it and trying to create it with all of these alkalides and all these special compounds. And he couldn't quite nail it. And then he thinks he got it. And then here comes Coco saying, I want to make a perfume. Give me some smells. And he gives her essentially a series of numbered vials with various concoctions of his own making. She chooses the one with this ice smell in it, among other things. And it's number five, the vial. She also loved it because she was going to debut this perfume on May 5th, the fifth day of the fifth month, and a five-pointed star. And there's all sorts of numerology involved in in it also. Um, And the bottle, you can probably imagine that kind of classic Chanel number Mm -hmm. five bottle. Even that is sort of inspired by Boy Capel because it's like a flask. It it reflects some of his brandy bottles and some of his hip flasks and some of that just like hunting polo Mm -hmm. design. And then there's the marketing. Okay, so old girl's got her scent. She loves it. She's got the bottle designed. She loves it. She and her friends start going around Paris just spraying people with this stuff. Restaurants, <laughs> fashion shows oh on the God. street. I, I mean, just get, and people are like, oh my God. And part of the marketing is her saying, you ladies have been stuck wearing perfume that is a gift for you. Other people are telling mm. you your smell. Your smell is so personal. It is so important. You should be able to choose your own and who doesn't want to wear what I'm wearing? I'm Chanel. Everybody already loves me. And it takes off, right? So fast, Amanda. I mean, this is a legendary story. Like if you Mm -hmm. want to talk about Coco Chanel, you know, episode on the perfume, probably. Absolutely. And (laughs) absolutely. And you could also tell this story from a designer's point of view. Mm -hmm. You can tell it from a business marketing 
executive point of view. You can tell this from a personal artistic point of view. I mean, it's a fascinating. It wasn't, I can't remember, something about the first perfume to be copyrighted or something and then marketed um, or mass marketed. I can't remember the. Well, the manufacturing origin. is huge because it yeah. goes to all five continents within a year. Everybody wants it. It's hot, 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 yeah. hot. And the other thing that the couture brands are realizing is that this is a annual moneymaker in the sense that it has their couture brand mm -hmm. and doesn't need to change. It's a constant. And it's a, and it's a price point that most <clears throat> people can't afford. So then that's exactly. a whole other So I can't afford the $6,000 suit, but I can afford the $200 bottle and I still have Chanel in my life. Yes. I have Chanel in my closet. Yeah, exactly. And people smell it and recognize oh, it. Yeah. And she used to say, I want people to know it's me. I, if I leave a jacket at a party, I want them mm -hmm. to pick it up and know it's mine. And you're just like, yes, you start to get to this romance. I want to <laughs> yes. smell too, you know. Um, but the manufacturing then, to do a global manufacturing mm. of a product in 1920, she's not inventing this wheel, but it turns. This thing is turning, right? And how do you get on it? And so she is introduced through a number of her, uh, you know, high-end connections, of course, to these two brothers, Pierre and Paul Wertheimer. They own one of the hugest cosmetic companies in France, and they're one of the few who can manufacture mm -hmm. Chanel in that bottle, number five, and get it out globally. And they like her, and they believe in her. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't, she's not beating off investors. No. <laughs> that didn't come out right. <laughs> well. She is, I mean, she is beating I off mean. investors. <laughs> I mean, she's beating off plenty of yes. investors, but she is not turning away uh. um, a lot of investors. Um, and these guys are like, we'll do it. And in return, we're going to get 70% of the profits. And at the end of the day, she gets 10% mm. of the profits from Chanel number five, which is enough to make you richer than fucking anybody yep. in the world. 1% would be nice. 1%. <laughs> I take it. She, I'll take 0.5%, please. Yes. <laughs> and she wasn't destitute. Things weren't always great. Like there's mm -hmm. always a chance that a company can go bankrupt, but she personally was going to be financially fine forever. Yep. And now... With Chanel number no. five as a global thing, yep. she has more money than she could spend in a lifetime. She has no children. She does have a nephew named Andre that some people think might have been her kid, mm. but is almost definitely her nephew. She takes care of him. She sets him up, and she does apparently love him. He actually used to come visit her and boy mm. and hang out, and he's like kind of this cool thing. But otherwise, fuck, what is she yeah. going to do with all of her money? But... That 10% versus 70% to these two guys, it still bugs her. And it's mm. interesting because it is where the crack oh. <laughs> of the of the ew part of cocoa yeah. comes up. So far, you, like me, may be like, fuck, yes. I fucking love Coco Chanel. I wish yeah. I had a tattoo <laughs> of Coco Chanel. I might. She's a bad bitch. Yep. She doesn't give a fuck. She's cool as shit. She's a cultural icon. She changed everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and she's an anti-Semite from birth. Like, I mean, nobody's an well, anti-Semite from no birth. No one's perfect. But that convent. Yeah. There was a real intentional and diligent infusion of anti-Semitism into Catholic education in Europe at the mm -hmm. time that she was there. It would have been overt. It would have been blatant. There was this huge event called the Dreyfus Affair, yet another element of this story that could have an episode all of its own. But it was essentially a story of treason that this Jewish soldier was accused of essentially committing high treason. And it was just like this 
a lie. It didn't happen. It was all contrived, but it was enough to get this like already bubbling anti-Semitism to have like a home and things were going crazy. Right. And most of the guys she's fucking are big time. Yeah. Racists, homophobes, because of course they're all high born, Mm -hmm. you know, rich cunts with, you know, (laughs) pros and cons. But she doesn't like the fact that these two Jewish guys Mm. are getting 70% of the profits, even though that is completely fair. It is absolutely what they agreed upon. They are putting in all of the money. (laughs) It's all of their equipment. It's all of their distribution. You know, it makes sense. Just doesn't like it. Okay. Where's the other 20%? I think that there is like various other investors, small investors that could have been bought out, but the bottom line is it wouldn't have that would not have put her. She still would have had that 10%. She still would have had. She still, and even if she had gotten them, she still would have had yeah. a less, right? 30%. Still wouldn't have been what she probably no. in, her, in her mind would have felt good. Now, so that bothers her. Okay. She's 40 years old at this point in the story. Uh-huh. Okay. This, this next lover, this next level of intrigue for Coco Chanel, just my toes are already curled up oh, into, no. my, into my shoes and the little fists. <laughs> She's 40. Hot, still hot. Who isn't? She starts a relationship with the Duke of Westminster. Now, girl has known money. She has money. She has, as her as, right now, I told you, more money than yep. she can spend in a lifetime. It is nothing compared to the money that the Duke of Westminster has. This guy... <sighs> I mean, he's the, these are the guys. These are the colonizing epoch of royalty and aristocracy for generations. The wealth is staggering and almost hard to, like, comprehend. He buys her estates, entire estates, castles. He buys her diamonds mm-hmm. that fit, are, like, the size of a fist that are inestimable. And she, in a fit of rage threw it over the side of a yacht because she was fucking mad at him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, explosive What, what ocean fights. was this? No, I know, exactly. <laughs> I'm on the way. Exactly. Um, and she really, really, really wants to have his baby, which is interesting. Hmm. She talks about it, too. She says, I really, really want to have his baby. She doesn't talk about why a baby is anybody, but for sure you'd want to have this guy's well, yeah. baby, actually, right? <laughs> and she can't. And it devastates her. And he has to marry someone who can have his babies, even though they're both older and there's, but he can't right yeah. stay with her and they are electric. <laughs> they are obviously she's throwing diamonds into the ocean. Like they're having a go of it, which is obviously of course why he likes her because yeah. probably very few people throw his diamonds in the ocean. No. That gets him very excited. And she says of him that all she wanted what from him ever was flowers that he's picked with his own hands. Because he would constantly be sending things out for her, mm-hmm. and she just wanted right him. Classic, gorgeous. Um, he, however, is a fucking piece of shit, and he loves Nazis and he hates oh, no. Jews, and he's super tight with Winston Churchill. In fact, when the Duke of Westminster does get married to someone who's obviously not Coco Chanel, Winston Churchill is his best man. Mm. These guys are all, right? And Coco is buddies with Winston Churchill. This puts her squarely in the middle of some Mm. very, very powerful heavy hitters in a very, very tumultuous time, right, in history. That time, coming straight at us, of course, is World War II. 
So she is in her 40s. She is living in Paris. She is running her son. They are doing uh, full outfits. They are doing mm-hmm. purses. They are doing shoes. She has added accessories. Um, and it's great. Things are, going, things are going very well for her. She's gone to uh, America and tried doing some costumes <laughs> in Los Angeles for Hollywood it, to mix reviews. She's doing costume designs for theaters with Picasso. And it is very, very cool, right? Yeah, and the opera. And the opera. I mean, yeah. it's beautiful, right? Yeah. World War II, when the Germans occupy France, hard to articulate how super mm. bizarre and very, very spooky that was for everybody, regardless of how you felt about Jews or Germans, right? Everything's shut down. The tanks are rolling through town. Coco shuts down her factories, shuts down everything, and says this is no time for fashion. At the time, that is not seen as like a heroic, like cool act. Mm-hmm. In fact, a lot of people were like, she was sticking it to her laborers who had just gone on a strike and were demanding more money. She was kind of like, fuck you guys. That mm-hmm. was part of it. And that was the point. Like we need, they were hoping that you would continue to employ your people, keep people fed, keep paying your, and that she just shut down was sort of a fuck you, mm-hmm. right? Some of the history books will tell you then she goes immediately, she shuts down her shops and she moves into the Ritz in Paris, which mm-hmm. is the same hotel yeah. where all these high-ranking Nazi generals were occupying space. And that was how she rubbed elbows with them. It is very key, Amanda, to know that she first went to the Pyrenees in a car, just like got the fuck out of Dodge mm-hmm. like everybody else, and went to her nephew, Andre. She had him set up somewhere and she goes to his house and he's got a kid and she finds out that her nephew, Andre, who she loves, has been captured by the Germans and is a prisoner of war. Oh, man. I know. And after a little while, she goes back to Paris and she moves into the Ritz and she starts fucking this high-ranking Nazi guy um, named Baron Hans Gunther von Dieklager. Oh, yeah. Say that five times fast. Baron Hans Gunther von <laughs> Dinklage. <laughs> I don't think I could say it once. Yeah. And he, uh, yeah, Nazi piece of shit who's in the Ritz. Now, if you really like Coco and you really want to pretend like she's good and makes all good choices, then it's pretty easy to concoct a, a theory of how to get Andre out of the prisoner of war camp. She descended mm. to the, fuck these Nazi assholes and advantage a way to get in there. But like I said... This is, these are her guys. These are yeah. exactly the kind of guys she likes. These are exactly the kinds of ideals and philosophies that she kind of endorses. And she does use this situation to her advantage against those Wertheimer brothers. Mm. Because one of the things that the Nazis did is confiscate all Jewish property, right? And so she is like, oh, <laughs> really? Because... I, and she makes an mm. official plea. I think the 70% that they were taking, it was it was unjust for them to take it in the first place. And now that you have righted this wrong, oh, uh, I'd like that. And the Wertheimers had anticipated, I don't know if they anticipated what she was going to do, but they certainly mm. knew what the Nazis were. Yeah. <laughs> like that wasn't exactly the slowest moving right yeah. thread in history. And they gave their shares, like sold and gave their uh, official mm-hmm. uh, uh, property to Christian French allies who held it for them. So she mm-hmm. couldn't get it from them anyway. And then get this, they're buddies after the war. They know, everybody knows exactly what happened. And the Wertheimers not only are like, yeah, well, they fund her comeback in the 1950s. Oh man. But I don't know, again, if you want to be nice, 
and you want to say that she was like doing this all for something like if the Nazis were going to take that property, they're not giving it back. Like oh, the Nazis yeah. took it from these, like that. She wasn't taking it from them. She wasn't telling them where they were hiding or anything. She was just like, I'd like all of the money. <laughs> I want all my <laughs> money, for please. Michelle, please. Yes. This is the other huge reveal that came out in that 2011 book, that sleeping with the enemy mm-hmm. book. So apparently while she's fucking Baron Hans Gunther von Dinklager, <laughs> um, she is swept up in this plan that he and some SS German Nazi entities separate from Adolf Hitler want to negotiate a peace Hmm. with Winston Churchill and the allies. And they're trying basically to go behind Hitler's back to cover, save their asses Mm -hmm. and get out of this. Right. And so they, kind of recruit Coco Chanel and a couple of her friends. I know you know Winston Churchill. I was, mm-hmm. You guys ride horses together with what's his name, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Would you be so good as yes. to go talk to, right? <laughs> and see if he'll do this. And she did. She apparently went. She met with him. She said, yes, they have a file on her. This file is now available. If She said, I understand what you want. And she was bartering. Hmm. She wanted to get her nephew out of jail. That was the deal. Like, release him if I do this. Um, and then she gets on, she like goes and they're intercepted. It's, it's done. It's like nothing happens. Mm. It, she, she goes, sure. I will do that. She goes to meet with Winston Churchill and it's like, they get captured. And the woman she's with is like, we're, we're doing it to get us peace. We did it. Oh, <laughs> we no. did it. And then it's so bizarre because she, at the end of the war, women who did this, who mm. fucked Nazis, let alone that they tried to negotiate some sort of secret peace beaten they had their heads shaved they had like fucking swastikas yeah. drawn on their foreheads i mean it was awful and she didn't get any of that treatment and she was interrogated to whatever extent that means one day and went her way they say winston churchill intervened on her hmm. behalf probably because they were going to expose that he and his group of buddies that she's all fucking kind of like the Nazis for a while and weren't yeah. that against a lot of this stuff. And it just was going to be uncomfortable for him. So he let it go. It's stuck though hmm. in the minds of the French, you and I and history and people who pick up this stuff and don't know anything about it. Go, that's fucking nuts. I've never heard anything about that. Yeah. There were a lot of people in France who were like, Oh, we all know Coco Chanel's a Nazi. We have hated her since the 1950s, and she is. And what she does when the war is officially over, she has that little uh, interview. She gets the fuck out of Dodge for nine years. She goes to Switzerland. She's like, bye, bitch. Right? Because this is mm-hmm. bad. Now, everything about her life so far is crazy and cool and unlikely and dark and like morally oh, yeah. complex and awful. She's now 1950s in her 70s, she's like 71. And sh- there's rumors in Paris that Coco Chanel is going to launch a new line. There's like, mm. what the fuck? And then, poof, oh my God, 1954, she does. She comes out with a new line. She comes back into Paris with her cigarettes and her pearls and her hat. <laughs> her shoes. She's like, yes, bitch, yes. I and never left, bitch. I <laughs> never left, bitch. And it falls flat. It doesn't, it, she... It doesn't, like, take off. She can't quite get the footing she had before. 
But America Uh-oh. was like, you know what? We hired a bunch of Nazis for NASA, and they were great. <laughs> You're not wrong. We are the melting pot lady. Get over here. You know, there was just, it was oh, less. Yeah, I mean, uh, success immigrant and come this on, and that and woman, making their man. own way in life. Let's Absolutely. Go. So when she comes to America, she gets that comeback, the wave, the, yeah. the picture. If you have a picture of Chanel as an old woman, this was the period of time. And she wore pretty much the same thing every day, her hat. The, the classic suit and this interview and the um, pearls and the pearls never without the pearls. And, um, one of these, uh, documentaries that I was watching interviewed a former model for her and mm-hmm. they show these models in her salon that would be walking through these like velvet chairs and these mirrored rooms. And she said, this model, everything was for her. Coco would be sitting up on a high level, looking down on them and there would be masters of industry and celebrities and actors and all these fabulous people. And the only ones they ever kind of kept an eye cocked on was Coco herself. Mm. She was like, that was the only person that existed. She was the only one who mattered. And you hung on her every, you know, twitch of her arm when she was watching <laughs> you. Um, she hated the miniskirt of the 1960s. She said it was pretentious. She said it showed the knee, which was only rarely attractive. And therefore, <laughs> it was pretentious to wear it and to sell one was egregious. And then this, if you recall in the beginning, I said that she was a bad feminist. Yeah. She wasn't a feminist. She wasn't, she was a bad feminist. She was not a feminist. No. The repeating thing here with Coco Chanel is that she did what was right for her. She was so fiercely independent that, yeah, she probably inspired independence in other people, mm-hmm. but she was never out there trying to spread the word or, or help bring anybody. or help but her, anybody. But herself. She never wanted to help yeah. anybody. Yes, exactly. This is a quote that I. I'm, the reason I'm setting it up like this is because I sat up crisscross applesauce in front of my oh, TV no. with the remote <laughs> and a bowl of weed and my limited French and the help of like some subtitles, <laughs> right? Because I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Oh, and no. then I was like, if this is right, and then I and then I put it into my translator after I did it. I was mm-hmm. like, this is oh my god, oh, this my is god. what she said. Okay. Quote. I don't believe in women's strength. I believe in women's weakness. Women are stupid. There are maybe three important women in the world, and there are several men who would gladly take their place, but they've given them to women. I don't know why. Oh my god. Okay. You don't see that on a, on a coffee she, mug. No, she's saying it and she's holding the cigarette and she's sitting on the edge of the couch and she's just in this guy's oh, face. Oh no. I mean, man, it's amazing. And you know, on November 22nd, 1963, the day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated, mm-hmm. right? Jackie Kennedy is wearing a Chanel suit and Marilyn Monroe his mistress yep. is wearing Chanel number five. She came back at 71 yep. and dominated the culture again. It's really, really, really crazy. In her last years, mm-hmm. in her end years, she was described as a tyrant. <laughs> they Surprise. say that she grew more <laughs> tyrannical. You don't say. Um, and her best friend was a gay man. And she was a total homophobe. She has quotes not unlike mm. this one about women, which are like, gay men are disease and they ruin men and women's lives. <laughs> They're terrible, terrible, silly little things. I oh, mean, no. she's just rotten. 
but her closest friend at the end of her life mm. is a gay man. And, um, and she continues, of course, to mm-hmm. leave her legacy. Um, as of this recording, Chanel number five is globally the top three scent sold in the world. What's in? The, what are the rotating two? I can't remember. Um, it was Dior Sauvage, mm. I think was number one. And then, um, another Dior, another I think Dior, Dior home or something two. or yeah, Versace. Versace. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. Totally mm. fucking batshit story. Um, that was a joy, yes. a joy. And you know, one of the fun things about like really immersing myself in Coco Chanel and the story was um, not only a new appreciation for fashion, mm-hmm. a humbling of myself before this really, really powerful force in human history is what we wear and why we wear it. And what how would it you makes say, like, feel. if you have jewelry on and you don't think it's enough, add more. Yeah. But then there's also like the finishing of that quote is like, or just fucking wear what you want to wear. Like, it doesn't matter. Uh-huh. Like, your style is what you make it pretty much. Yeah. Which is so interesting because. The other side of that is yeah. style is what you make it. Do your own thing and pay me $6,000 <laughs> to give you exactly what I'm wearing. Or at least 200 for the perfume. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of why I like her because well, yeah. it's, she's just sort of giving up the charade at the beginning. Like, mm-hmm. I am not here to inspire you to be yourself. I'm here to help you be more like me. If that's what you want. I happen to be. If not, I'll be good either way. I've I've decided that I'm going to live my life in a way that's easier to run up a flight of stairs. And if that means you, for you too, then I'll get you some nice sensible pumps and a skirt that ain't going to bind. And $8,000, it could cost you $8,000. Yeah. Yeah. Marlena Dietrich was one of her famous personal clients. Yeah. um, Greta Garbo mm-hmm. would get her suits personally tailored for her. I'd fucking die for a show. Oh, same. If you ever find one, anyone listening. Yes. At a Goodwill even, I'll oh take it, word. please. Can you imagine somebody taking their oh Chanel God, suit to Goodwill? You know what happens. I mean, it, it does happen. <laughs> if you want to sit down with a big fat joint and get that lost in cocoa, I have links to... All of these documentaries and interviews and all that stuff in the show notes for this episode. You can go there and look at them now. You can also go there to find more information on Diva Dads, yes. the movie, where Amanda Michelle is performing live yes, next, and how you can get tickets to see her. Is there anything else that the good people should know before we sign off? Wear what you want to wear. Put on those pearls and those heels and slay all day. Hey! <laughs> Thanks again to Amanda Michelle. Follow her everywhere. She is at Blonde Bitch LA and watch for her upcoming independent film, Diva Dads. As for you and me, I'll see you back here for our next new episode with LA-based photographer, director, and former professional hacker, Encrypt. She and I fuck Anne Boleyn, one of Henry VIII's doomed wives and the mother of Elizabeth I. Hot. Until then, our theme song was composed and performed by Kat Perkins. A reminder that you can find my sources, links to the books, documentaries, and articles I reference in the summary of this episode or by emailing us hilfpodcast at gmail.com or messaging us on social media at hilfpodcast. 
If you'd like to become a patron of the pod, go to patreon.com slash podcast and see what we can do for each other. This has been Hilf. History I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody, reminding you that history is a party. And everybody's coming. Ha, ha, ha.